He says, you're going to get the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is critical. The main character of the book of Acts, written by Luke the doctor, the main character, the main force in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the actor, if you will. He's the main um, mover and shaker in the book of Acts. The early church gathered together for worship and prayer, and the early church expanded. Join Pastor Hook as we learn lessons from the book of Acts as God grows his church. We are in a study of Acts, and this is one of my uh, favorite books of the New Testament. It's because you get, I love the Gospels. I love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you get four different pictures of Jesus from those Gospels, uh, each emphasizing a different thing. But we only get one act, and this is from Dr. Luke. And we spent a little bit of time on our last episode talking about who Dr. Luke is in the introduction to this, but um, probably worth just spending a little bit more time talking about who he is. Um, This is from Wikipedia, uh, where it says Luke is one of the four evangelists, the four traditionally ascribed authors of the canonical Gospels. The early church fathers ascribed him authorship of both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, which is what we're studying now, which would mean Luke contributed over a quarter of the text of the New Testament, more than any other author. Prominent figures in early Christianity, such as Jerome and Eusebius, later reaffirmed his authorship, although a lack of conclusive evidence as to the identity of the author of the works has led to discussion in scholarly circles, both secular and religious. You know, I I find this just so fascinating that um, people, people in modern New Testament scholarship think that they know better than the early church fathers. Like Eusebius said who it is, Jerome said, you know, this is who Luke is. They, they describe him. They talk about him. This is our historical. This is what was uh, passed down to us from um, the early church. And uh, so you have this situation where everybody understands who Luke is. And then all of a sudden you have 2,000 years later, they're like, well, there's this problem and this problem and this problem, as if because we are so intelligent, uh, we know better than the early church. And I just, I don't, I don't buy that. I think the early church was pretty smart people. If it wasn't, if it wasn't Luke, they would have said, you know, who, you know, if they would have said. So um, let's see if there's anything else in here. Uh, yeah, Luke is considered to be a physician. Uh, that's from Colossians 4, 14, uh, which I can bring up on the screen here. Um, I guess we'll read, yeah, Luke 4, 4 or uh, Colossians 4, 14. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So that's also um, just, just that's why we think Luke was a doctor, right? Because everybody calls him the, Duke, the doctor. He's a physician. He is one who heals. That's what the Greek is, the one who brings healing. So that is, um, that is why we call him Dr. Luke. Uh, uh, we today believe that doctors are extremely 
uh, intelligent. Uh, and so I would also say that Luke was an intelligent guy. I think all the writers of all the Gospels are intelligent. I think the early church was very intelligent. Um, they had intelligent people back then. If you could write, if you could put together a written document, then you were ahead of most people. Um, you were in the top 10 or 15 or 20 percent for sure, right? Not just not that you were. How do I say this? We, we think, well, I just put it this way. If you had the capability and the ability to put together a gospel, you you were very you were a means you you had intelligence people should listen to you I mean all that sort of thing <clears throat> oh my voice because of the dust all right so um, I think we'll just go ahead and start reading and we'll just we'll just go back to one one and start reading so here is Luke uh, chapter one begin or not Luke uh, Acts chapter one beginning in verse one in my former book Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So uh, Luke is writing to Theophilus, and uh, as he writes, uh, just listen to this. Uh, you know, In my former book, I wrote all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions to the apostles he had chosen. After suffering, he presented himself to them, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So this is obviously Luke was not present. It does not appear that Luke was present in the the things that he's talking about here at the end of the Gospels. Uh, he's talking in the third person. If, if, uh, if he was talking in the first person, then he would say us. Um, although... Uh, if you look at the other Gospels, uh, it doesn't necess- It does kind of give this third-person feel to it, also. Um, so, uh, was Luke present with Jesus after the resurrection? Was he one of the ones that followed him around? That could be up for debate for sure. But what's clear is Jesus says, "Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Holy Spirit." Now, there's a reason why Luke is talking about waiting for the Holy Spirit. Because he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. That John baptized with water. This is John the baptizer, John the Baptist, who baptized with water. But you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And then it goes on. uh, Verse 6. Right here. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Uh, And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Um, They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, 
When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, um, obviously, this is not. This is kind of the end of the Gospels. This is the end of the Jesus story. Uh, he spent time on earth, born in Bethlehem, uh, spent time learning, growing, becoming mature, and then he had a three-year public ministry that started with his... Uh, 40 days in the wilderness. It ended with his death, his resurrection. Everybody sees him. He gives further instruction, and then he goes up into heaven. And this is then, and you don't see Jesus again. This is it. Um, And it is interesting that the gospel writer says that the, the next time you see Jesus again, he will be descending just the same way you saw him leave. And the way he left is that he ascended into heaven. He disappeared like a balloon, right? He went into the heaven and you didn't see him anymore. And there's two guys who are saying, why do you keep looking for him? He's not, he's not there. You've got work to do here on this earth. Um, so wait for him to come back. At some point, he'll come back just like you saw him. He'll kind of descend and uh, he'll be like a balloon that's going in a reverse direction and, and all the world will see him. I have no idea how that's possible. Um, there is an author, his name is Paul Meyer, and he is a Lutheran pastor and he wrote a book, um, The Skeleton of Christ or something like that. It's something about the skeleton and, uh, it was a big mystery novel. Um, and it's, uh, was it that book? He wrote a couple books, but in one of the books, uh, he explains how modern technology because of video cameras and all that sort of thing that when Jesus does come back, from heaven like all the world will see him because it'll be publicized there'll be a, a camera focused on it. like what is that object and a camera will focus on it and everybody will you know around the world because of modern technology they'll have their iphones on uh and because of satellites going around the earth everybody will be able to see this this figure descend uh somewhere in jerusalem perhaps i don't know and everybody will see jesus and of course a hundred years ago, there have people, been people saying, well, there's no way possible that everybody's going to see Jesus. That's impossible because he'll come back in one location. And how will, how will it be possible that everybody will see him if he just comes back in one location? And this is, I'm not saying this is exactly what's going to happen, but this is a potential way that it could happen, right? Is that Jesus could be just a little figure that some astronomer, you know, looking up into the sky sees him. Uh, or maybe it's uh, maybe it's the Iron Dome. Maybe it's uh, the Jewish uh, military will see this speck in the sky and say, what is that? And they'll focus all the cameras on it um, and they'll say, wait a minute, it's a guy <laughs> coming down. Uh, and then they'll live broadcast this because the word will get out and then everybody will be able to see Jesus coming back. Um, and then he'll take his rightful position in the throne and who knows what will happen at that point. But there's these two angels, these two men dressed in white that stood beside them. These are probably the same guys at the tomb, perhaps. Who knows? Um, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you to heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And that's the last we get of Jesus in the gospel in this uh, book of Acts. And it's basically just reminding, it's reminding uh, 
Theophilus, who this book is written to, it's reminding Theophilus of kind of how the Gospel of Luke ended. But it also sets the stage for what Jesus says. He says, you're going to get the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is critical. The main character of the book of Acts, written by Luke the doctor, the main character, the main force in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the actor, if you will. He's the main um, mover and shaker in the book of Acts. Everything that gets done in the book of Acts is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so he wants to make that very, very clear. And so um, that's that's what's happening. All right, so um, we'll, we'll continue on uh, in verse 12. So in verse 12, uh, we have a problem. And the problem is that um, the problem is is that Judas is no longer around. One of the 12 is dead. Uh, he betrayed Jesus, Jesus, and because of that, he dies. And so they feel like there needs to be 12 disciples. Maybe this is what Jesus said. There always should be 12 of you. Or maybe the church took it upon themselves to say, we need 12 men. Um, but, but whatever the reason, they decided that they're going to they're gonna come up with another person. So we'll read in verse 12. This is Acts 1.12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, um, good stuff here. So, we now get a complete list at one time of who the 11 remaining disciples are, and it's these guys. Uh, You've heard Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Those were the first four called, Peter and James. Peter and uh, Andrew, James and John. All right, Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. These are four fishermen. They are uh, best friends. They knew each other in Galilee. uh, And they all kind of get called by Jesus and they're all still together. Uh, And then you have the rest of them, which is Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew. He's the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, which is a different James, uh, this is James, the son of Alphaeus, supposed to James, the brother of John, and one of the sons of Thunder, the sons of Zebedee. Simon the Zealot, which is different Simon, and Judas, son of James, who's a different Judas. And they're all together in one place. Um, uh, yeah. So, and with with Jesus' brothers. So apparently Jesus, besides the disciples, has other brothers. One of those brothers would have been James, the brother of Jesus, who is also at some point becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's the author of the book of James. So he's there also. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And then the other women who were traveling around with them. So there's a small cadre of people They're all gathered together. It's not just the 11 disciples. It's also Jesus' mother, Jesus' brothers, probably among them James, and um, 
other women that would have been a part of this. And what happens at that point? Well, Peter, of course, who is the my favorite guy, right? And my favorite disciple is Peter because he's so bold and daring and he takes risks, which I like to take. And um, he's bold for Jesus, which I'm prayerfully trying to be. Um, and he is the one who said, Jesus, let me walk on the water. And he actually walks on the water until he sees the waves and says, wait a minute, I shouldn't be walking on water. His faith goes away and he starts to fall into the water. That's the Peter that I love. Well, what does he do? He gets up and he starts talking to them. Uh, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of the number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Jesus bought a field where he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, a field of blood. For, said Peter, it was written in the book of Psalms, may, he, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So, this is why Peter believes they need to have another one. Because may another take his place of leadership. Um, in other words, they felt compelled through Scripture. They searched Scripture and they saw let another take his place of leadership. Um, so we should do that. A couple things here. First of all, uh, Judas kills himself. He fell headlong. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Um, there's another place where it says that Judas hanged himself. Um, not exactly sure how, uh, what the demise of Judas was and how all of these stories fit together, but he definitely took the money and ran, and because of that, was dead. I mean, that's that's basically the bottom line. And there's a place in a field somewhere that's called Akaldema, which is a field of blood, which they say is the blood of Judas. Uh, because he killed himself, because he fell headlong into, he fell headlong maybe into the field and body burst open. It did not go well for Judas, let's put it that way. And if you can imagine, um, would, would if, if, Ju if Judas had stayed around, would Jesus, Jesus have, have forgiven him? I mean, that's probably the biggest question that we could ask. We know that Peter also denied him after Jesus told him, you're going to deny me. You're going to, you're, you, at the end, I'll be all alone and you will be gone. And, and Peter says, no, Lord, you know, forbid it that I should ever leave you. I will always be here. I will never deny you. And then Jesus says, before the cock crows three times, you'll have denied me. And then sure enough, Peter did deny Jesus. But then when Jesus came back, uh, Peter and Jesus were uh, brought back into a relationship and Peter becomes the follower of Jesus. And you have to wonder if Judas had stuck around, if he hadn't taken the money and run, if he'd have stayed in Jerusalem around the whole thing and all of a sudden Jesus rises from the dead and Judas is just a minor subplot of this whole thing, 
would he have been the hero of the story because he was the one that actually, uh, you know, got Jesus to the tomb so he could rise again. And that's an interesting theological question that we could all ask. Is there anything that we could do on this world that would ever separate us from God's love? And the answer, of course, from Romans 8 is there's no. For there's no power, for I'm convinced that neither life nor death, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things past, nor things present, nor any other created thing could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, no, there's nothing. So whatever's going on in our lives, even if we get separated from the world, even if the world thinks we're crazy, which it does sometimes, we're never separated from God's love, no matter where we go. Um, And that, my friends, is huge because the world is ripping itself apart. The world right now, at least in the United States, says that you have, you're either on one side of this issue on coronavirus, on the other side of the issue on the coronavirus, and you have to take a stand. If you don't take a stand, you're weak and gullible and dumb. Um, And yet Jesus says, no, you're actually in my kingdom. My kingdom is different from all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to take a stand. You can love people on both sides of the aisle. You can serve God in every aspect of this coronavirus. And um, people on the earth get their comfort. They get their passion, everything about them by being on one side or the other of any issue. And Jesus says, no, you know, it's okay if you take a side, but understand that your true identity is your presence with me, your presence in the kingdom. I am your true identity. And uh, love and serve me in that kingdom, and you will never, ever be away from me. No matter what stupid things you do, you're still in my kingdom. Um, and so that's, that's the kingdom that we live in. That's the kingdom that I live in. That's the kingdom that gives me hope when I do stupid things or when I, you know, the world falls apart. I can just say, um, you know, simply to the cross I cling of the cross of Jesus. I live present with Jesus, and that's where I that's where I reside. Um, yeah. So they decided that there's going to be another to take a place of leadership, and uh, I guess we could just read that real quick. So, therefore, it is necessary to choose. This is verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. So I always find this very, very fascinating, funny. All right, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, and they probably all turned to Peter and said, okay, Peter, which one is it? Um, Or they could have voted, right? We have a democracy today, uh, and so we probably would have uh, said, I mean, there's different ways in in different periods of time, there's different ways to come to decisions, right? One of the ways is to say, Let's vote, and whoever has 50% plus one, they get elected. Or you might say, well, this one's an important vote, so we need two-thirds vote, so it's that. 
or it might be in you know African cultures, which is you know total consensus, which is everybody has to agree, or it might be everybody minus one or something like that. But that I mean that's how they did it. But they cho- they didn't do any of that stuff. What was common in their day is to actually cast lots, where you maybe take the short stick. You know you have sticks and all they're all the same, but you know one of them is shorter, and you hand them out and somebody picks the stick, and you know it's it's a random it's a random lot decision. Um, and, and then, uh, the reason why I find that so funny is because, uh, how much time we spend on trying to get the facts right so that we can educate everybody. Um, and then, you know, everybody votes and, and you might vote twice or whatever to see which direction the church should go. And we spend so much time doing that, um, but in the early church, they basically just cast lots. They said, okay, here's the available candidates. This cast lots. Um, I, I, I think about a call process. If a church is going through a call process, they, you know, they might have uh, you know, 19 candidates and they narrow it down to five and then they interview those five and they narrow it down to three and then they bring three out and they study and all that and it gets down to one and the call committee might vote two or three times and it gets down to one person, you know, through this incredibly scientific process. Or, you know, you could say, here's the available candidates, let's just select one. And um, I, I, I think that that's probably not, in today's world, that's probably not the best way because you're impacting a whole lot more people. Uh, so you need to be very careful with your decision. But I think it's funny that in the early church, they just, it's boom, just we're going to cast lots and we're going to call it good. And they get Matthias. All right, so I think we'll leave it there um, and we'll kind of get into the Acts too because Acts has got some great stuff in it uh, and I want to get to that tomorrow. So um, let's just go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious God, uh, thanks for this day. Thanks for the beauty of your creation. Um, thanks for choosing your disciples and, and Thanks for your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.